So if you want a beautiful story, then your story is going to need conflict. And if our lives are a story and we want to live a beautiful life, then our lives are going to need some conflict. But if I'm honest, I don't want any conflict in my life. I want a pain-free life. I want a comfortable life. Anybody else? Right? Okay, good. Very good. I'm not alone. It's sort of like this. Uh, Imagine you go to a movie, um, you know, paying $42 to go to the movie. And um, imagine the, the, uh, the previews are done, and the movie begins, and a couple comes on, and they're just rolling out of bed, and the two-hour movie captures their day. They go to work, and they smile a lot, and uh, they do a little work on their computer in their cubicle, and the next thing uh, they do is they, on their way home from work, they hit up Trader Joe's, and then uh, they go home, and they watch Netflix, they talk a little bit, and that's the end of the movie. Do you want to watch that movie? No, right? That movie has a 1% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, not even the Hallmark Channel plays that movie, right? No one wants to see that movie, but it seems that everyone wants to live that life. Everyone seems to want that life. I I want an easy life. I want a pain-free life. I want a conflict-free life. And this is is me talking. This is is the the life that I want. Like, I want to get on the 2-3 train tomorrow morning with no signal issues, right? (laughs) Right? And you know, I'm not, I'm not even asking. Like, I'm not even asking for, like, an empty train. Like, I'll just take a seat. Like, just one seat. You know, it doesn't have to be multiple. All right? Like, I want to eat Levain cookies every night before bed, and it equal negative calories. All right? This is what I want. I want to wake up, and it feel like I just worked out, but it never actually worked out. Right? <laughs> and after all of that, I want to die old and warm in my bed. Like, this... I want a conflict, pain-free life. But when we come to the scriptures, we're, we're not getting teachings on how to live an easy life. We're not getting teachings on how to live a comfortable life, but what we are getting is what it looks like to go through life's tensions and life trials and life's conflicts faithfully and what these trials could actually do or form us into as we walk with God. One of the questions that I um, like to ask when I'm reading the scriptures is, um, in, in a personal way, I just ask, God, what are you like? I read the text and I say, God, what are you like in this passage? What is it teaching me about who you are? And I sat down earlier this week to read the passage in Genesis chapter 22, and I said, God, what are you like? And I began to get a little bit uncomfortable with the answers that I was coming to. Um, and, and if we're going to ask these questions about this text, it doesn't, it doesn't look like This is a good God. It doesn't look like I'm getting the answers that I'm looking for. And in fact, I have a three-month-old daughter. Her name is Rose. And I sat this week, early on in the week, um, with Rose on the couch. And you say, ah, but try writing a sermon on Genesis chapter 22 with your new child next to you, right? And I'm serious about this. I, I, I sat there, and I began to read the text, and I began to study, and I began to think through, and I began to ask questions. How could God ask for this? Like, the Bible is supposed to contain this God of love and truth and justice. How could God ask for a child's sacrifice? And I began to read a lot of books and check in with some different scholars on what what was going on in the passage. And a lot of scholars, actually what they wanted to do was to explain away what was happening. But the reality when I came to the scriptures is that this is real for Abraham. This is real for him. He's going to sacrifice his son, Isaac, and as a new father, I just had to admit, you know what? If I was the original editor of the Bible, I would take this out. 
Like, I, I would take this out, or maybe I wouldn't take it out, but I wouldn't leave it so early on in the Bible. You know what? Maybe like, maybe like a little bit later, three quarters of the way through, you know, if you're reading it straight through, you're like, oh, we're all good. Later on, we're like, ah, it's a little frustrating, but there's been some other good things along the way, right? That's, that's maybe what we do. And I just want to say this, this one time, just for, the, for those of you who are in a community group, uh, this week when you get to community group and, and someone starts rambling on about child sacrifice, let them finish their statement, but let's, let's get back to what the implications are of Abraham and his faith for you, because this story is not about child sacrifice, and I hope to show you that today. So d- please, please, please don't get stuck on that. The book of Deuteronomy, like multiple times throughout the Bible, we find out that child sacrifice is wrong. I can't even believe I have to say this, you know, but... Let's, let's make sure that in our community groups this week, we're really internalizing what this passage is about. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to walk us through this narrative. I'll kind of uh, just write through the story, and I want to pull out some truths that I think that this passage teaches us about our faith. And so let's start in verse 1. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And so Genesis 22, um, if, you just, if you just read it, it it's sort of confusing. You're like, oh, okay, well, what's been happening before? And actually, the author is inviting you to find out what happened before. Uh, it begins in verse 1, after these things. Well, after what things? And so you have to take in Genesis 22 uh, in the context, in, in the entire life of Abraham, what is going on? And Genesis 22 is actually sort of the climax of Abraham's faith journey because 10 chapters earlier, God invited him to follow him. In Genesis chapter 12, this is what it says in verse 1 and 2. And you'll see some parallels here. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. And so God says two things here to Abraham. He says, Go, leave, and on the other hand, he says, and I'll bless you. And so if you go back to the text, you find out that he says, leave your inheritance. I'm going to give you an inheritance. Leave the protection of your family. I'm going to be your protection. Leave your identity completely behind you, and I'm going to give you a new identity as a people. And then he says, leave your father, and I'll make you a father. Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you and through your descendants. And he comes to him multiple times over the next few chapters to let him know, to affirm that promise. I'm going to do this. He he has Abraham look up in the sky, uh, in the desert sky, not the New York City sky, to see all the stars, right? And he says, look at all the stars in the sky. That's what your descendants are going to be like. And so what do Abraham and Sarah do? They step out in faith. They say, God, I'm going to follow you. You're you're telling me that you're going to give me descendants. So In the narrative of Genesis 12, up until this point in chapter 22, what are they waiting for? They're waiting for a son, right? They're they're waiting for this promised son. They're waiting for someone to carry on the family line. And this is kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around in such a a highly individualistic culture where our identity and our self-worth is usually wrapped up in our abilities or our work or our achievements, our career. But in Abraham's culture, if you have no son, you have no life. Who's going to take the land that you have? Who's going to carry on the family name? This is what Abraham cared about. And so in some senses, Abraham has no family, and so he has no identity. And so Abraham and Sarah, they take steps faithfully out into the desert to live this nomadic life and to follow God, and 
five years go by? Nothing. That seems reasonable, right? God said, I'm going to give you descendants. Five, five years is a really long time. God, we've been waiting, but you know what? Five years. All right, we're just going to keep waiting. Ten years. Ten years goes, goes by and nothing. And this 10-year mark is probably uh, where we were last week with the covenant promises, with God making a covenant promise uh, to Abraham. It had probably, Abraham had probably been following God at, at, at 10 years at that point. And if you haven't listened to last week's message, it really helps uh, put in context what's happening in, in Abraham's life. But uh, Abraham is struggling to believe that God is going to follow through on his promises. And God comes to Abraham and he says, do you know who I am? I'm a, I'm a covenant-making and I'm a covenant-keeping God. This is what I do. Hang in there. And from there, from like chapter 15, it's like this roller coaster of Abraham being faithful and unfaithful and faithful and unfaithful and trying to take matters into his own hands. But time keeps passing, 15 years, 20 years, and finally, 25 years, Abraham is 100 years old, Sarah is 90 years old, and Isaac is born. Finally, all they ever wanted, they got and, and finally, in one sense, Abraham is not a fool, right? All this time, he's like, God's going to make me a father of many nations. He's going to give me descendants. And they're like, dude, you are 100 years old, you know? What, what is going on? He doesn't look like a fool anymore. And Isaac, Isaac represents more than just a son. He, he's the very promises of God on display. He's the future hope for Israel and the descendants that are to come. Uh, Isaac is Abraham's career and his retirement and his name and his hopes and his dreams. And so when we look at this text and we think, wow, a man, God is asking a man to murder his son, we miss it. No, 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 no. Isaac is the very gift of God on display in Abraham and Sarah's life. It's like this. Think of, think of the prayers that, that you've prayed in the last few months. Think about the things that you wish God would do in your life that you've been asking him. Probably a lot of great things. Now, imagine if God said yes to every one of those prayers, and you got all of it. This is where we find Abraham. Abraham has made it. He, he has the thing that he has been longing for all this time. And in chapter 12, what God asks Abraham to do is to sever himself from his past, leave, go, put all of that behind you. I'm going to take you Onto a, on a journey, I'm going to give you descendants. He has what he's so been longing for. And then we find in Genesis chapter 22, it seems like God wants to cut him off from his future. Chapter 12, sever yourself from your past. Chapter 22, sever yourself from the future that I promised you. What's God doing? That seems confusing, right? Why in the world would God want to separate Abraham from his past and his future? And, and for us today, why would God want you to not trust what's behind you or worry about what's ahead of you. What does this say about God? Here's the first thing I want to pull out of this text, and it's just this what-if question. What if faith is more than a noun? What if faith is more than a noun? We often talk about faith as a noun, and it definitely is this, but I think oftentimes what we do is we reduce our faith to a sort of cognitive doctrine that we have in our head. And we get to accumulate more and more and more and more of it, and that equals somehow to us more faith in God. But I don't think that's what faith is. My, my simple definition of faith is trusting that God is who he says he is, and he'll do all he promised to do. That, that's what I think faith is. It's trusting that God is who he says he is, and he's going to do all that he's promised to do. What's that first word? Trust. 
That's, that's action, right? That's a, that's a way of you and I sort of saying, you know what, uh, trust, I'm going to lean myself. I'm going to lean my life on this and say, this is what's going to provide me meaning and purpose. And what we find throughout Abraham's story is actually this is what Abraham is commended for. And I'm not advocating for some like moralistic, uh, works-based faith where we're like, you have to do, do, do. That's not, that's not what I'm, I'm saying. But rather, what if we understood faith as something to be used? You can have faith. And in and of itself, it may not be worth much, but faith in action is what God is looking for. Think about it like this. Um, you ever get like the stomach flu? Horrible, right? So imagine you have the stomach flu and you, and you go to the doctor and, and they give you the medicine that's like going to cure you and you take it and you go home, you, you, you open your cabinet, you set it in there next to your toothpaste and you say, oh man, my stomach hurts so bad. That, that cure is worthless, Right? The cure is worthless because you haven't put the power of it in action. And faith is the same way. It is the cure for a meaningless life. Having it is actually worthless unless you and I are willing to put it in action. But I think some of us have been so content in filling up our heads, our faith actually never amounts to anything in our life. I became a, a Christian when I was 13 years old. Um, and my story is essentially this. My, my mom and my sisters happened to move across the street um, from a local church, and I didn't really know it at the time, but as a, as a young man, I was, I was desperately looking for a father figure. My, uh, my parents divorced when I was seven years old. Uh, my dad uh, was around, but he was working all the time, and um, sort of just in the last um, five, six years, I've taken the time to reflect on this, to figure out where some hidden shame was in my own life and to talk to people about it, especially as I got married uh, a number of years ago, um, I, I really began to ask myself this question, what does it look like to be a man? Because I, I, I'd never had that modeled for me. And so I began to ask these questions, and I re I've been reflecting a lot over the last couple of years about um, how lucky I've, I felt that I was. As I look back on my life and I look back and say, wow, I had... Um, I had a lot of spiritual guides. I had a lot of spiritual fathers in my life, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that, um, that I had a lot of spiritual fathers that would guide me. But as I reflect back to being a 13-year-old boy, um, when I became a Christian, I, I didn't really know any theology. Like, I, I had very little knowledge. I didn't know the difference between the Old and New Testament. I thought, I thought the gospel was just a type of music, you know? But I was genuine, as I look back at that time in my life, I was genuine in what was going on in my life, the simple things that I was believing, and I think God is really honored by simple faith like that. And so what if, what if like Abraham, faith is, is more than a noun? It's this sort of active trust. It's a way of you and I rehearsing that which we hold. We get to like rehearse it out loud, and with this definition, I think what's important um, to draw a line between is, if we're going to accept this definition, then we don't get to say, I have faith or have no faith. Like, um, I, I went to dinner uh, with, a, with a, a family friend recently, and uh, he was telling, we were having a great dinner, and, and I was telling him about our future plans and our church plan, all, all the things that we're working towards, and he said, I'm so glad that your faith has worked for you. And I left there, and I just sort of paused, and I was like, like, what does that even mean, one? But like, I don't think that's actually fair. And so I accepted you know, what he had been saying, but I reflected on it later, and I wish I could go back to that moment. I wish I could go back to that moment and say, what, what, are, you, what are you, what's working for you? What are you leaning your life on? What are you trusting in? 
And so with, with this idea in mind, we actually don't have faith or don't have faith, but actually we all place faith. We place faith. It's something that uh, we actually have the opportunity to do in, in our lives. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you believe, you are putting your trust in something. It could be money, it could be a relationship, it could be yourself, it could be religion, wh whatever it is. But each and every one of us is, in a way, placing our faith. And if we took this sort of action-oriented idea about what faith is, then we would be cognizant this morning and we would say, you know what, I am, I am actually leading my life on some things. I am trusting in other things. And that's sort of the question that Abraham leaves us with. What are you leaning on in your life to make you feel secure? Is it the arrival of the next promotion? Is it making it through the school year? Is it, is it honestly just like, God's going to take me through this season, and I'm just going to get into the next season? For me, as, as I evaluate this, my, for, for Katie and I, as, as we're getting ready to start this church in, in Union Square, I, I would be lying to you if I was trusting God no matter what, like, like Abraham is. Like, and I'm not going to go into like a therapy session with you up here, but I think, I think there are parts of me that feel like I'm putting my trust in a specific outcome that, that I'm scheming up in my own head. And, and I'm realizing there's a difference between these two things. Trusting God for an outcome sort of assumes that my plans should happen, and if they don't, God is not good or he doesn't love me. But trusting that God is good, regardless of the outcomes that I'm dreaming of, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm challenged by that. I don't know if I'm, I'm ready to say that. But see, this is exactly where Abraham has found himself in this sort of dichotomy of, I have a son, I'm not ready to sacrifice that, that yet. See, that's a life full of conflict, but again, we're trying to tell a beautiful story. And so back to Abraham. Abraham has arrived, and in verse 3, we see this like, simple obedience. Here's what he says. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And so God asks, and what does Abraham do? He just takes the step, right? He just takes the next faithful step. And I don't want to confuse you about this. This is a three-day journey that they've been on. And so he looks at the, the young men that are with him, and he says, hey, I want you guys to wait right here. And then in verse 5, Abraham says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. Why does it say that? Why does it say that the boy is going to come back? Like, that's, that's not what is supposed to happen. That's not, what is Abraham saying? And I don't have an answer for this necessarily. I'm, I'm wondering, is Abraham lying? Is he trying to make sure these guys don't change what's about to happen? Does Abraham know something we don't know? And I don't think it's that because there's a fascinating note in here. Abraham, in the text, what does he hand Isaac? There, there's three objects. There's wood, there's a knife, and there's fire. He hands him the wood, right? The least dangerous of all the materials he gives to Isaac, and he takes the knife and, and, and the flint for the fire. It's, it's interesting. He, he seems to still care about his son. And as Isaac is holding the wood, it begins to dawn on him. We have the wood. My dad has the knife. We're going to worship. Hey, Dad, where's the lamb? Like we, we have everything to make this sacrifice, but no lamb. And man, I can't even imagine Abraham's thinking right here. What's going on in his mind? I imagine his mind is sort of racing. How is he going to live with himself after this? How do, you, how do you come home to a mother without her son? 
What is he beginning to think? And the sickening weight of the knife on his side, the fire in his coat, and his son asks, where's, where's the lamb? I can almost hear Abraham's voice crack as he's holding back the tears when he says in verse 8, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. Three days' journey? How? How is he doing this? How is he taking the steps? It just seems like this blind obedience, right? It brings us to the next things. What if faith happens by participation? What if faith happens by participation? Why is it so easy for Abraham to take this three-day journey? And in one sense, I think we just need to call out the fact that Abraham has been following God for a long time at this point. If the boy, the boy can carry the wood, maybe he's, let's say he's 10 years old. I don't really know. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe he's 10 years old. We'll add that to the 25. And so Abraham has been following God for 35 years. And so in one sense, his faith has grown through trials and through obedience and through failure to a point where he'd say, you know what, I'm following God because I've tried my way in the past and it hasn't worked. But what if faith happens by participation and not manipulation? Like, I don't know about you, but if I were Abraham, I would talk back to God. Like, I don't don't know if I'm going to take... I don't even know if I would take the steps as, as he calls him, but you know what? Abraham's like, I'm walking. You know what? If I were, if I were walking, I got three days to talk, talk God out of this, right? I got three days to say, you know what? Take my son. No, 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 no. How about we take one of the young men? They're one of my cousins. You know, they owe me some money. Like, how about one of those guys, right? Or, or like, you know what? God gave, God gave Abraham the land. Why not be like, God, you take an acre or two back, you know? Why not, why not you just do that? But see, faith can't be manipulated. You you can't fake out God because faith happens by participation. And if we want to engage in acts of faith, then we do that in in relationship to a God who's out of our control. He can't be tamed like that. And and I want to pause here because when we meet the real God, we have to give up control because in some ways that's simply what it means to be a Christian. When, uh, you know, the next step is going to, step class is going to happen in a few minutes. And I think in there, you know, you guys are going to talk about baptism. And at baptism, you have a confession of your faith. You say, Jesus is my Savior. You say, I want him to to save me. I'm seeing um, my shortcoming. I'm seeing my sin, and I need someone to save me from that. And we're like, yeah, that's that's a great thing. I need that. But also the other side of it is that we get to say that Jesus is my Lord, you know what a Lord is? A Lord is a boss, right? You, can't, you, can't, you, you don't negotiate with the boss, right? And so that's what it means to be a Christian. You're saying, I'm taking, I'm taking control off the hands of my life, and I'm letting someone else have it. Why is this important? Here's why this is like practically important for you today, is that because you can't control someone and have intimacy with them at the same time. You can't control someone and have intimacy with them at the same time. Like, I remember uh, early on in my marriage, like the, the sixth, seventh, eighth month mark of, of my marriage, um, my, my wife and I, we were trying to manage each other's behavior all the time. Stop doing that. Come home earlier. You didn't do the dishes. I did the dishes. You didn't do them. You know, like this same conversation that we would have over and over and over again telling each other what to do. And what was happening was we were trying to control one another. We were imposing our will on each other, and it was detrimental to our relationship. And I think the truth is, and we were able to work through that, but I think the the truth of that is, is some of us are doing that with God. 
We say, you know what, God, stay in the box that I have you in, and I'm going to bring you out when I want you to, but you need to be tame and kind. And we say, God, you know what, don't, don't disagree with me. And what do, we, what do we do? We impose our will on God. What are we doing? We're creating God in our image instead of being created in his, right? And so somewhere along the way in our life, this is what this text teaches us, somewhere along the way in our life, we realize that we're not in charge of our own lives. What if faith happens by participation and not manipulation? Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So the act has happened. He's bound him and he's ready. What if faith is harder than we thought? What if faith is harder than we thought? Uh, up until this point, everything God asked of Abraham was balanced with a promise, right? Leave your land, I'm going to give you a land, right? Leave your father behind, I'm going to make you a father. Everything was sort of counterbalanced out. And in some ways you'd say, well, yeah, Abraham, it, I mean, it's not that faithful. He got a lot of good things from God, right? Do this, you're going to get something better. And I wonder if on this three-day walk, Abraham isn't wondering, Okay, God said, sacrifice my son, he's going to give me something better, right? And what, what begins to happen is we, we sort of get into the motivation uh, of Abraham's faith here. Why is he following God? But nothing ever, God never says anything else up, in, up until this point. And again, this is not about him murdering his son. In, in, in the New Testament, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, here's what it says about this. It says, by faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through your son Isaac, the offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham is actually faced with a question here. Am I trusting in God or the things that I treasure most? And that, that's a tough question, right? And I think this is, this is what brings us to this point. What if, what if faith is actually harder than we thought? I don't want to sacrifice, right? I don't, want, I don't want to do that. Abraham, at this point in his life, you have to understand, the deepest desire and longing of his heart, the thing that God said he would give him was a son. Now he's saying, sacrifice your son. What? And don't forget the beginning, remember? I want an easy life. Like I, I want a pain-free life. I want a conflict-free life. And right now, God, it doesn't feel like you're harming me. It feels like you're killing me, right? It feels like you're killing me. Well, what is the great promise of the story? The son, right? And God says, would you sacrifice your son? What's motivating us to follow God? Is it the blessings or is it God himself? And I know, I know the, the inner dialogue that you and I are having right now is, is like, wow, I would never, never sacrifice my son. I would, I would, like, I would never do that. But that's exactly what this story is about. What won't you climb up the mountain with? What won't you lay down for God? What is the thing that's actually been becoming your functional God? And God says, I want you to set that aside and sacrifice it for me. Because for us as a people, we'd say, well, you know what? If I, if I actually just had that, I would be at this like, arrival point. If I just had that, I would be in a better place. I would be fulfilled. Even for me this week, um, I love preaching, um, and I hate it all at once because um, the, the text seems to always read, read me first before I read it 
and I was, um, I was evaluating this scripture and writing this stuff, and I'm like, I don't want to say that because then I have to say how it's affecting me, you know? But for me, I was asking myself this question. What if God really did call me? Like, what if God really did call me to New York City just to be at Renaissance and my dreams of planting a church fail? Would that be enough for me? And I look back and I would say, God, it seems, like, it seems like I've been following you every step of the way. I've been trying to be faithful in each of those steps. It felt painful at times. It felt stupid at times. I've been trying to follow you every step of the way, but what if it all fails? Will God be enough for me? And what I, what I maybe just need to do in that process is say, you know what, Russell, you just really like your plans, don't you? Like, I don't, I don't want to sacrifice that's not on my Myers-Briggs profile, right? Sacrifice? That's not in there, I promise. What if the only thing at the end of my journey is just God himself standing there? Would that be enough for me? And would that be enough for Abraham? And would that be enough for you? Like, whatever it is, and I don't know what it is for you, this dialogue that you're having in your head right now where you're saying, you know what, like, he might be kind of referencing that thing, but I'm not going there today, Right? Like, if I only had a spouse, if I had that job, you know, if, if I just, if I just, you know, if I just got out of the city, if I just could stay here a little bit longer, then you know what? But what is it? If that thing you lost and God was the only thing at the end of that, would that be enough for you? Isaac was the very blessing of God. He was the good gift of God. In, 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 a, in a sense, what God is asking Abraham is, is, Abraham, would you give up the gifts to get the giver? Would you give up the gifts to just get the giver? What's motivating you in your relationship with God? God himself or the promises or the benefits that come your way? Because I, I, I think sometimes what we think in our life is we, we'd say, man, it really feels like God is going against me, like he's trying to take something from me. But what if God is really not about taking something from you, but taking something from you that's killing you? Like what if in the process of the pain that you're going through is God saying, you know what, I'm trying to save you by taking that from you. Let go. You're gripping way too tight. And maybe this is what God is telling Abraham. You're grabbing onto something that can never save you. And so all week I was like processing all this and I just thought of a simple question. You just write this down, put it in your phone, whatever it is, text it to yourself. Will I follow God if there's no advantage for me? Like what, what if there's nothing in it for you at all? And I do think that there are benefits for following Jesus. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, will you do it if there's nothing in it for you? Would we give God our lives if the only thing we got back in return was himself? And so, just when Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, let me go back real quick. That's hard, right? And I, I, that, that sounds difficult. There's, a, there's even a tension inside of us with that. Like, God, it feels like you're killing me. Sacrifice. Russell's telling me like, that I, I'm supposed to give something up, and, and this, is, this sounds way too hard. And I think that's a really important thing for us to actually feel. Could you just feel the weight of that for a second? Because that's what Abraham is, is feeling here. He didn't know his God was going to bring resolution. Remember, Isaac says, Dad, Dad, where, where's the lamb? And he never lied to his son. He just sort of put it back on him in verse 8. He says, God's going to provide, son. He essentially says, I don't know how God is going to bring resolution to this situation. I, I have no idea, but God will, will provide. How's he going to reconcile the fact that he called me to this and he's telling me to sacrifice it? I, I don't know, but I trust him. 
Verse 11. But then the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt sacrifice instead of his son. And so God takes the ram and this idea of substitution comes in. A lamb instead of a son. A lamb instead of a son. Last question. What if faith is easier than we thought? What if, what if faith is easier than we thought? And I think sometimes we, we do, we, we, we make faith more difficult uh, than, than it needs to be. Uh, there's a lot of culturally complex ideas when it comes to faith and religion, and so we sort of insert that in. It just gets complex where we're, you know, saying, you know, have I been nice enough? Have I performed good enough? Have I thought of my neighbors first? And so we really do beat ourselves up when it comes to our faith. And that's why I wanted to, in this third point, when I ask you, um, you know, what if faith is harder than you thought? I wanted to sort of build up a barrier for you to say, is there an ability for me to jump over the barrier? Because this is hard. And, And this is, but what if it is easy? Like the, the bar is, is set really high for us. This seems really, really difficult. I can't do this. I don't know how. And that's exactly the point. That's, that's where God works his, his best is when you're weak, when you say, I, I, I don't know how to conquer this. And so what if the point of all this is that faith is easy because faith is a gift? Here's what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, the Christian way is different. It's harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the one you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. He says, I'll give you a new self. I'll give you myself. That's easy, right? That that part of it's easy. It's just accepting that. See, this scripture, whatever you thought it was about in the beginning, this, this scripture is not about how you and I can become like Abraham, but actually this scripture is about Jesus. You know, Jesus made some outlandish claims, and one of them is in Luke chapter 24, and verse 27, Jesus says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is sitting with some religious leaders. He says, here's what the Bible's really about. You know those stories long, long, long ago? Yeah, those are, those are about me. And hopefully this is illuminating what this text is about, and I hope that you're finding this in your community groups, and I know Jordan has done a great job teaching this over the last uh, few months in this, in this Old Testament story. But in our text, what is there? There's a lamb, there's a son, and a sacrifice. There's a lamb, there's a son, and there's a sacrifice. And maybe you just pause and say, well, what is this story really about? What if this story is about the one who took our place when we deserved it? What if this story is about when you and I deserved death because of our sin, the lamb took it? And then then with that lens in mind, maybe you'd rewind and say, you know what? This story is so brutal. This story is so brutal. I can't wrap my mind around it. You know what I would say to you? 
The cross of Jesus Christ is brutal. Like, it's bloody, and it's messy, and it's hard to explain, but in the same way, that's how we have to look at this. We'd say, wow, Abraham, I would never do that. That's, That's horrible. But didn't God do that? So the cool thing about this passage is you say, well, how, how do I know? Like, how do I know God is going to provide for me if I, if I really do lay, lay this thing down? How, 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 how do I know God isn't going to leave me? How do I know that God is good? In the book of Romans, Paul says this, Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do, how do I know God's going to provide for me? He already did with his son Jesus. In the passage, God says to Abraham, for I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son from me, your only son. What do we get to do in return? We get to look at this passage and say, God, I know you love me, seeing that you have not withheld your son from me, your only son whom you love. And so today, after service, um, we're having this next step class, and, and this is just a really good opportunity to, to take the next step in your faith, to ask questions like Jordan was talking about. Baptism is a, is a big step in that direction, and some of us, we've been talking about it, we've thought about it. Maybe two years ago, we were like, I'm in, and then we sort of backed out at the last minute. Maybe this is a time for you to take some steps on a journey of following Jesus It's not all clear right away. This is one of the things this shows us. It is a journey that we go on through a lifetime. And you're going to fall short at times, and that's a part of the journey. And I know your reservations already. You're thinking, well, you know, like, I don't don't really feel like I know enough, or I don't have enough information. Well, come to the class and get equipped. And then you're still like, well, you know what? Like, I I, I don't know all the books of the Bible. Neither does Jordan, all right? (laughs) All right. So... For some, of you, uh, for some of you in the room, you, you've taken these steps, and, and you've said, I, like, I've, I've done all this before, but you have been having an inner chatter th- this morning, and, and my invitation to you would be to take this, this time in, in, in just a few minutes to really evaluate what, what, what is motivating me to follow God? Like, why do I, why do I show up on Sunday mornings faithfully? Why, why do I do that? And, and that, that's like a good question. Would you follow God if there's nothing in it for you? Let me pray for you this morning. God, I love you so much, and as we come to this passage, I I think maybe what we see is that somehow, someway, you're so kind to us. When we don't deserve it, uh, you you give us a lamb. You give us your son instead of us. And so, Father, as we walk out of here today, I, I pray that our faith would be bolstered up. I pray that we would think, wow, I don't know how to do that, but we would also say, it's easy. I lean my life on you, and I'm trusting that you have it figured out. God, some of us in here have a tension going on inside of us, and I just pray, God, that you would give us your spirit to follow you wherever it may lead you, where at the end of it, if you're the only thing there, we would say, that's enough for me. It's in your name we pray. Amen.